I'm going to ask uh, John if he wants to come up, and John's going to um, sing us a song that he wrote from John 10. So last week we covered John 10, we're going to talk about John 11 this week, and so John is going to sing a song from John 10, um, if that works. Um, and also remind you that if you're interested in any type of singing or if you play an instrument, um, we're going to have a meeting afterwards in the courtyard. Um, come and if, even if this is your first week and you want to say, hey, I want to join and be part of that, like come and join us. It doesn't matter how long you've been with us. Um, come and we're going to talk about those things. So we'll let John go here. <clears throat> Actually, always when I when I sing, I'm a little conflicted because the guitar has all these frets. Psalm 37, verse one says, "Do not fret." I'm going to sing this passage in John, as uh, as Tip said, uh, uh, John 10, 27 to 30. And some have written about that passage that it's that probably. Looking through all the Old and New Testament, you cannot find uh, a stronger um, assertion of the safety of the Christian. Um, one of the things it does is that Jesus says in reference to his sheep, he says, they will never perish. And the never consists of two of Greek words, one is ooh and one is may. And who may not remember that, but it's a very, it's a very positive, very positive <laughs> assertion that we are safe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 30, Jesus says, um, what does he say? Um, verse 30, Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Well, I, a personal distinction and the essence of deity, that's Jesus. My Father, another personal distinction and the essence of deity. And when he says, are one, well, he's talking about the essence of deity. The Father's omnipotence is Jesus' omnipotence. The Father's uh, omniscience is Jesus' omniscience. Everything that the Father has, uh, Jesus has. They're, they're the same. They're the substance of God.
Thanks, John. Thanks for reminding us of that, that um, Jesus and the Father are one, that He is God. It's a good reminder that He's in control and that we don't have to fear those things at all. Um, so, over the last few weeks, we've been looking, um, I guess more than the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of John, and we've kind of seen the story building and building, and Jesus' claims of who He is are becoming bigger and bolder. Um, as well as he's kind of becoming more encrypted in a sense. He's starting to, he calls himself the bread of life. He calls himself the living water. He calls himself the light of the world. He calls himself the good shepherd. And he's backing up those claims um, by both teaching these things and like doing miraculous acts. And so he, he talks about bread and then he produces bread and he talks about water and does all these other different things. Well, today in chapter 11, we'll see Jesus claim that he's the resurrection and the life. And then he's going to follow that up by raising a man from the dead. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so as we look at that story today, um, I want us to, we're going to spin that out. But as we look at it, one of the major themes in this story is actually the theme of love, which kind of is pretty neat that we kind of hit this right on Valentine's Day next week. Um, I didn't even plan it that way. If I was smarter, I would have. Um, but, but this word love is actually a, a very complicated word. It's a word that often gets thrown around. It's one that, that we use for many different things. You know, you can say, well, I love Los Angeles, or um, I love chai teas, lattes at Tanner's, right, Victoria? Um, I, I love my wife. I love my kids. Somehow we use this word for, for many different things. Um, so as you think about the word love, how would you describe it? Someone asked you to describe the word love. What, what would you, how would you define it? How would you describe it? An emotional bond with someone, okay? How else? Strong bond with a strong bond with someone, okay? Something that makes you feel good, okay? It's undescribable, okay? Okay? It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of that and not that we loved him, but he loved us first. Okay? Good. How else would you describe love? In that same vein, a sacrificial relationship. Okay? Something that we sacrifice, we give up for. Okay? Yeah. Something that excites us. It's an excited feeling. Okay? Something we usually get excited about, we feel passionate about. Yeah, good. What else? First Corinthians 13 lists all those different things. Yeah, okay. We usually see those things read at weddings. <coughs> Anything else? I mean, the great theologians, D.C. Talk would say love is a verb. Okay. <laughs> Love's a verb. It's an action. I don't know what's funny. Okay. <laughs> yeah, D.C. Talk. They, they've said something along the way. They did a lot of talking, I guess. Singing. Um, that's bad. I, I'm pulling off a of John this morning. Yeah. As you think about love, how, how do you receive love? What's the best way for someone to show you love? Gifts. Getting <laughs> gifts. Spending time with me. Spending time with you, okay? Yeah, I heard a commercial for some, like, jewelry thing. It said, like, giving is love, Jeff, just so you know. Um, <laughs> all right, spending time with you, okay? How else? How else do you receive love? Or what's the best way to, for love to be shown to you? Acceptance. Acceptance. Okay, someone accepts you for who you are. Okay, good. Uh, getting, yelled at. getting yelled at. Okay. 
<laughs> you thought it was funny? I was going to say something cool about that. I think, well, maybe, I don't know if it's cool or not, but um, there is a piece of that when someone actually, like, spends enough time or willing to, like, speak into your life. That is love. Yeah, good. How else? How else do you... Okay. When you're vulnerable or open and someone's vulnerable and open to you. Okay, good. What else? A touch and embrace. Okay, yeah, often love is defined by, by touch in our world, for sure. So when yeah. someone, like, initiates things with me, like, when I feel, like, pursued, okay. uh, I feel like that's really cool. Right, when someone pursues you rather than you have to be the pursuant. All right, so you give her gifts and she'll pursue you. <laughs> that's how it works. All right. Anything else? Okay, sacrificing something or serving you to giving up what they want for, for you. Okay, good. Persisting when it's undeserved. Okay, continuing to persist even when it's undeserved. Okay, good. What else? Forgiveness. Okay, someone willingly forgives you and pursues you to, to forgive you. Yeah, good. Forgives you even when you don't ask for it or, or those things or deserve it maybe along the way. Yeah. Okay, yeah, when someone else hurts, you hurt, okay? That's, that's probably a definition of love. There's a, there's a, a connection there that when someone else is hurting, you, you're, you're hurting as well. Good. I think what happens is, is often when we take these definitions we, of love, we place God into one of those boxes. And that's all great as long as we receive that type of love from Him. But when it doesn't look that way, I say immediately what happens is we, we turn on Him and say, God doesn't love me. And either he's unjust or I need to do something else in order for him to love me. And, and again, here's the problem is, is that's really not, not how God's love works. Um, God's, love does, God's love is not based on, on what we do. It's not based on the things that, that happen around us or the things that, that are happening to us. really aren't definitive um, reflections of God's measure of love for us. And so what we'll see in the story today is that we're, we're not in alone in thinking and putting God in a box when it comes to love. And, and uh, that his, his definition is, is actually far greater than, than those things that we can think of. And how we measure God's love for you and for me is, basically, is really how much of himself he shows to us. God's love is how much he gives you to know and enjoy him is really the true mark of his love. And so that's where we're going to. That's what, we're, that's what I want us to see as we, as we look through chapter 11. And so I want to pick up reading. Um, and I'm going to kind of read some and skip a little some just so we don't have time to read all of it. Um, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to chapter 11, verse 1. And we'll, we'll read and kind of work our way through this passage and, and hopefully come to an understanding of God's love. So verse 1 it says, Now a certain man was ill, named Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary, and her, his, her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I want to stop there for a second because that doesn't seem to like add up in some sense. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to, that it's not a statement that you would think would follow. Jesus loved them and oh, he's sick and he's probably not going to do well. Let me just hang out here for a couple more days. He's, he'll be okay. Just let, let, him, let him go. It's not really a statement that, we'll, that we kind of think will follow that. It's kind of a turn in the story a little bit. What happens next in the story is, is Jesus' disciples come to him and, and they have this discussion about, about really not going there because they're, they're afraid for his life. Bethany is very close to Jerusalem and as you know, the religious leaders at this time are, are looking to kill him and so they're saying, if you go there, you're going to die, Jesus. You're going to get stoned. And in verse 9, he goes on and reminds them um, that he's the light. He flashes back um, that he's the light of the world. And he says this in verse 9. He says, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in a day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world, of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Basically, Jesus says, There's, there's 12 hours in a day, and I'm going to walk in the light of the day. So, so it won't be dark. And it's not just like I'm going to walk in the daytime so they won't get me in the daytime. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying I'm not going to stumble into a mob, which is really a kind of funny way of saying that I'm going to arrive at my appointed time with the cross. Exactly when I intend to, at the end of the day. Now Jesus says this as well in John 9. There's some context in 9.4. 9, he says this, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And night is coming when no, one can, when no one can work. So the day that Jesus has in mind here is a period in time in which God's favor is really resting and surrounding Jesus with, with the light of extraordinary protection and his power and until the appointed task when he's going to protection will be removed. And so that's what he's talking about here. So when he says there's 12 hours in a day, he's saying this day will be completed and nobody's going to be able to cut it short. We can go. It doesn't matter whether they want to kill me or not. We're not going to be stoned because I'm walking in the light of the Father. So he finishes that up and he says, I'm not going to die, but you know who is? Lazarus. He follows it up. He says this in verse 14. He says, then the Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Right before that, in verse 13, he said he had fallen asleep. And then the disciples are like, well, if he's fallen asleep, won't he get back up? And he's just like, no, he's dead. He's like, I'm not going to die, but he died. And then verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. I'm glad he died. That doesn't sound like a picture of love that we're going to put on Jesus. I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So they make the trip to Lazarus' house. We're not sure how far away they were, but verse 17 says this. Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So Jesus waited for two days where he was. Then he started walking, and somewhere along the way, he misses the funeral, and Lazarus is in the grave now for four days. Dead for four days, which, which again doesn't seem to fit the statement of verse 5, that Jesus loves this family. He misses the funeral, he doesn't heal him, and he He's there now. What I think is also important, just kind of a historical perspective here, as we think about this four days. Four days is actually very significant in that time period. Many people in that, in that time period believed that, that a soul remained in a body for three days after death. And so even, even the pagans believed that their gods um, couldn't revive someone who had been dead more than three days. 
And so by delaying until the fourth day, um, Jesus is saying something about his power and something about his glory over all the other gods that anybody else was thinking about in the land at the time. And so as Jesus is, is a couple miles away, from where the family lived, Martha, one of the sisters, comes running out. And she's probably crying. She's probably, and she throws herself on the ground and she says this in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She doesn't get what he's going to say. She, she says, I, I understand he's going to rise again, you know, when you come back. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So they have this interaction, and we're not sure what else is said there, but then Jesus sends her to go get her sister. And this is what her sister says when she comes in verse 32. Now when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, and saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. The same exact thing. They both say the same thing. They both say, we believe you're powerful, we believe that you loved us. If you loved us, you would have come and healed our brother. We believed you could have done it. This is what love looks like to us. If you'd have loved us, you'd have come sooner. You'd have healed our brother. We, we, we called you to come. We sent for you. We asked that you would come. And now you're here. And in some ways, we're blaming you for his death. Because we knew you had the power to stop it. And so they're mourning, they're going through this process with Jesus, and, and Jesus says, let's go to the tomb, let's go, and, let's go to the tomb, let's, let's go to see him. So in verse 35, they get to the tomb, and, and Jesus weeps with them as well. I, I want to say, I, I mentioned this a little bit the other week, but, but he sits there with them in their pain. He doesn't diminish it. He mourns the brokenness. He mourns the loss of sin that brings pain and death, and, and Jesus, Jesus mourns with them. And, and can I say this? Jesus knows your pain and your loss as well. He knows the painful things in your life. Whether that's sickness or whether that's terrible things done to you or terrible things that ex- people have experienced around you or, or in your family or in your life. Jesus mourns those things as well. He mourns the way that things are not supposed to be. Death was never supposed to be part of this world. Sickness was never supposed to be part of this world. Pain was never supposed to be part of this world. And Jesus mourns these things. And Jesus, if Jesus mourns them, then that allows you to mourn them as well. It allows you to mourn if Jesus mourns. And so Jesus mourns here, knowing he's going to bring Lazarus back from the, life, from the dead. He knows he's going to bring him back from the dead, but Jesus sits in it and he mourns with them. He mourns in the brokenness of life that, that knowing that, that he's going to heal him. And can I say this? He mourns the brokenness in your life knowing that one day he's going to heal those things as well. And he's going to bring you back to life as well when he returns. And Jesus' love for each person um, and their broken story is evident here as he weeps and as he mourns 
with, with this family. We're going to see in just a few chapters that, that he's going to experience, he's going to experience the ultimate loss and the ultimate separation from his father with the death on the cross so that he might then bring healing and restoration and life to all that believe. And so Jesus is mourning here. And then in verse 38, it says this. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. He's like, It's going to be pretty stinky, Jesus. I don't know if you want to open that thing up. And Jesus says to her, Did I not tell you that if anyone believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. So somewhere along the way, there, there must, Jesus must have talked to the Father about this. He says here, we've already talked about it. So apparently, there, he must have prayed, which really shows the power of prayer here. Somewhere in the past, Jesus had prayed and asked for Lazarus' life. And God said, yes, but let's wait a few days on that. And I want to encourage you to continue to pray. One of our goals this year is, is praying and pursuing not yet believers. And may I, may I say, God may have already said yes, that he's going to bring that person to life. Just like he did with Lazarus. Yes, but we're going to wait a little bit. I'm going to call them from the dead, but I'm going to wait so that you can see more of my love, more of my power, and more how I work in their story. That's what he did with Lazarus, and that's what he did with you and me, if that's really the reality of it, right? You and I didn't come out of the womb, and all of a sudden, like, we were saved, and we're, like, all of a sudden, we had just, these people look exactly like God and his family, and these people don't. He, he spends, he waits in our stories, there's something going on here. And that's, that this is what he did with you and I. He knew before we were born that he was going to call you and me into this family. But he waits until the perfect time to raise people from the dead so that in his love would be seen more and more and more. So that he would be revealed for who he truly is. And so verse 43, he goes on and he says this. He says, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. And so following this, some people come to Jesus. The people that maybe were mourning with, with, with Martha and Mary and with the family, um, they come to Jesus and they believe in who he is. Others go and tell the Pharisees what's happened. And following this, we'll see the religious leaders take those things and they look for more ways to put Jesus to death. As we look at this part of the story, it's kind of almost like, finally, this is what love looks like. Right? He brings Lazarus back from the dead. I can imagine sorrow turning to joy. Their situation is fixed, right? The sisters got what they wanted. They got the desired result of the story. They got, they got the happy ending, right? Like everyone lived happily ever after. Because we don't see them 
much in the story after this. But that's really not the point of the story. It's not the point of the story that he was raised from the dead. Because Lazarus eventually died again. He's not still walking around. We haven't seen him, right? All their problems are not solved. Not everyone is following Jesus here. The leaders even hate him even more now. Jesus raising him from the dead is not the act of love in this story. It's not the primary act of love in the story. And let me show you why. If you go back to verse 5 and 6, it says that the reason why Jesus didn't heal Lazarus is that when he heard he was sick, because he loved him, um, that he would stay where he was. Basically, he loved him and he was going to let Lazarus die because he loved him. That's pretty crazy. Verse 5 and 6 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so, so therefore, when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So according to this, raising Lazarus wasn't the act of love. Letting him die was. And usually we don't think like this in our lives. That's not how we define love. I didn't hear that when we talked about it, like just letting someone die, letting them sit in where they're at. Um, we didn't, I didn't hear that. Maybe it's one of you didn't, just didn't want to say it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, let's, let's just, let's person in need, let's, let's just let them sit there and hang out. We're not going to serve them. Let's let them continue on. Like, that doesn't sound like love to us often. It sounds like often when we pray, though, Jesus, if you would fix this, or take this away, or give me what I want, or, or change this in my life, then I'll know you love me. But can I say, if we think that, then we've gotten it wrong. If we believe that in our lives, we've missed the point. We've missed the point of Jesus' love for us. And I think in order to understand this, we need to go back to verse 4 and look at the explanation that Jesus gave for, for why letting him die was love. Verse 4 says this, This illness does not lead to death. So he's going to die, we know that. That's not the goal of the point. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, it was more loving to put Lazarus through death and his sisters through grief if it would reveal more of God's glory to them. That's the definition of God's love. He loves by showing himself to people. He loves by showing himself to us. This is not the first time we've seen this. In John chapter 1 and verse 16, it says this, And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So there's this pattern where Jesus reveals his divine glory, and when we see it, from the fullness of seeing that, we receive grace. In other words, we receive grace when we see Jesus. That's really what the whole Gospel of John is about. It's really what the whole Bible is about, for that matter, revealing Jesus so that we would receive grace. John 14, 21 says the same thing. He says, And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I will show myself to him. So love equals the revealing of God. This is the way that Jesus loves us, reveals God to us. 
He doesn't, doesn't mainly love us in this life by sparing us from things, by sparing us from suffering and sparing us from death. He mainly loves us by showing us himself, by giving of himself to us, by showing us his glory. God loves us mainly by giving himself to us. And that is in the person of Jesus. And so as we think about this, don't measure the love of God for you by you getting what you think you need. Or by how much health you have. Or by how much wealth you have. Or how much comfort he brings into your life. If that were the measurement of God's love, then I would have to say he hates most people. He hates most of the people we see in the Bible. He especially hated the Apostle Paul. He goes through a bunch of mess. He must have hated most of his family on this earth right now. God's love is not measured that way. We need to measure God's love by how much of himself he shows you. How much of himself he gives you to know and to enjoy. I am sure that if we went around the room, because I know a lot of your stories and a lot of stuff that's going on in your lives, I'm sure if we go around the room, we could give testimonies of the many days of times when you've experienced suffering and you've experienced loss. And in those darkest days, when it seemed that all was lost, Jesus loved you. Not by first taking away the suffering or the loss or the darkness, but by giving you more of himself. By giving you an extra measure of of who he is in ways that you could never have understood without the painful season that you went through. The truth is, if we demand that God's love, God loves you the way that, that the world expects or the ways that, that we expect or receive love, then you won't really know what love is from God. The love of God is his gift of himself to you. The revealing of himself to you. Please hear this. Jesus planned this death because he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He stayed two days longer and let them walk through pain and death and out of that he showed them his glory and his love. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus planned another death as well. And after three days in a tomb, another stone would be rolled back and out would walk a living Savior who revealed the glory of God to all mankind, to all who would see him. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of God revealing himself. And if we look at verse 15, 50, we see this plan for death is beginning to reveal itself. Caiaphas, who's the high priest of this time, says they've decided... To, to kill Jesus at this time. Verse 50, it says this. And he's prophesying, it says this. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John says something really amazing here in verse 51. He says this. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied. In other words, God brought these words to mind, to, to Caiaphas' mind. God put these words in his mind. God put them there. These are the words. These, are, these, are, these words are basically Jesus' death warrant. Caiaphas wants him dead, out of the way. So he spoke these words. But the truth is, God wanted Jesus dead. He wanted him dead. He wanted him risen and reigning forever. So he spoke these words to Caiaphas. 
Basically, Caiaphas said, it's better for you that one man should perish for the people so that the whole nation should not perish. And what God was saying, it is better that Jesus die. It is better that he suffers pain and endures death. It's better than any other plan in the universe. You see, in the mind of Caiaphas, the plan was, we kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us for having a Messiah. That was Caiaphas's substitute. We substitute Jesus for ourselves. But in the mind of God, the substitution was this. I will kill my son so I don't have to kill you. God substitutes Jesus for his enemies. You see, the death of Jesus is not merely some tragic set of events which God turned for our good. It was a loving set of events that God set and planned for our good. He set in the beginning of time and planned it from way back when. And God himself served the death warrant on his own son. And he didn't just predict it, he unleashed it. And this word of prophecy tracked Jesus down in in the Garden of Gethsemane and put him under arrest. There was no other escape because this is the word of God. It was better that he die. It was better that he die. God caused pain and death and killed Jesus. Now that may sound harsh, right? That, that God would do that. Killing doesn't sound like love. That's another word we don't associate with love often. When we think of killing, we quickly, we quickly run to, to someone sinning or, or, or we run to cruelty. But we know that God never sins. We know that God is not cruel. So this killing was in love. How do we know that? Isaiah 53 says this. And I'll just read a couple of verses. It tells that God had planned this out as a means of revealing himself to people, as a means of revealing his glory. Isaiah 53 verse 4 said this, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. God smote him. In verse 6 it said, The Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 it says, Was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. So God smote him, he crushed him, he endured grief, so that you and I would no longer have to be apart from God. God designed, planned this death of Jesus. Really, God so loved the world that at the cost of his own son's life, he would experience pain so that you and I might see him and enjoy him forever. The love of God is the gift of himself to you. The good news is that all the things in your life, the goods, the bads, the hards, the fun is God revealing himself, is God's master plan of him revealing more of himself to you. More of himself. He planned these things. God is pursuing people. He's gathering people to himself. And he did this by planning and causing his own blood to be poured out on the cross. And the good news, as we look at the story of Lazarus coming back to life, is, is just a preview Because just like when Jesus spoke and Lazarus rose from the dead, Jesus is calling people back from the dead. And he's calling you and me out of the grave. Because the plan of God for Jesus to experience pain and death also includes life. Life out of death. Life out of pain. And so Jesus conquered death so that you and I might have life. So that we would know that we are intensely and pursued and loved. Jesus saying, I love you. 
This is Jesus saying to us, I love you. My love for you is, is not sparing sin. I'm not sparing suffering and death. It's the gift of myself. It's my glory. Do you see me? That's what Jesus is saying. Do you see me? Do you see, do you see me who, for who I really am? I want, to, I want you to see me in all of the things that, that are in your life. I, I want you to see me in all of these things. That's, pers- that's just part of my pursuit of you. I hope that that's true of you today. That as you think about the things that are going on in your life, that you start to see Jesus in the midst of them. Maybe you've never seen Jesus at all before. And I want to say Jesus is pursuing you. And he wants to call you out from being dead. If, if you've never seen Jesus in any part of the story, I'd love to sit down and talk with you about that and, and have the Spirit reveal to you that Jesus is actually the peace you're missing, that you're searching for. But please know this. God loves you, and he's going to use any means possible to reveal himself to you. Any means possible. Hard stuff, good stuff, bad stuff. They all are part of God's love for you and his, an opportunity for him to reveal his glory to you if you will open your eyes to see it. So I'm going to pray and ask that the Spirit would open our eyes to see these things even more clearly because it's not something that you and I can muster up strength to like hold our eyes open to see Jesus. We need the Spirit to reveal those things to us so that we would then fall on our face and say, oh, I thought this was love, but this really is love. Our Father, we thank you that you loved us so greatly that you would willingly come and die, that you would suffer the ultimate pain and grief and separation, separation that had never happened since the beginning of time, that you would do those things for us so that we would see you. Lord, how blind are we that it took that much? Father, I pray that, that as we think about the things that are going on in our lives right now, as we see the things that are going on in the lives of others that we love and care for, pray that you would give us eyes to see you in the midst of them. Pray that your, your love would sustain us, that you would, you would allow us to mourn uh, the brokenness of those things. Um, but ultimately turn our hearts and our eyes to you in the midst of them. Our Father, we thank you that, that you love us so deeply. But I pray out of that reflection of love, we would love others that way and that we would see and pursue others that way. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.